Hello and welcome to Adipod, a podcast by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. I'm your host, Emilio Garcia. Today, I sat down with Satya Marar, the policy director of the Australian Taxpayers Alliance, to talk about the Tamil family and climate change. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you want to learn more about the ATA, please stick around after the episode to learn more. Please enjoy. Here we are once again at the Australian Taxpayers Alliance office. I'm joined here by the policy director, Satya Marar. Yo, how's it going? Yeah, close enough. All right, all right. I'm getting there. (laughs) Um, Thanks for taking the time to talk to uh, your followers, your constituents, your donors. I'm here to serve the people. (laughs) All right. So let, let's jump into a, a topic that's uh, it's kind of saturating social media, news, very contentious, uh, I dare I say, have split feelings about it. And it's uh, a family that came here from Sri Lanka, uh, didn't do so legally, had a kid here. Two kids. They had one kid when they arrived and they had another kid. Already. Yeah, yeah. When they arrived, uh, like when they were, once they were already in Australia. And now it seems by by every measure they're um good law abiding people, but unfortunately they entered illegally and uh, the the law says if you enter illegally you must leave. So wh- why don't you get us started on this discussion? Yeah, look, it's it's an interesting case because um, normally refugee rights advocates are quick to jump on the most tragic story possible to try mm. and uh, you know make it their cause celebre, so to speak, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, for changing the government's policy on uh, border protection and on on uh, turn back the boats or letting people in. Um, in this case, you've got people as diverse as, Al- as Alan Jones, of all people, mm. coming out to support. One of the reasons being that this family uh, are now based in, you know, a regional Australian community of mm-hmm. below air. Um, the townsfolk massively, massively support them and want them to stay. Uh, the two of these children have pretty much only, I mean, one of them was born outside the country, I believe, but they both were essentially, have only really known life in Australia. Uh, and it seems cruel and, and, and horrible at this stage, uh, to take them out of the country. Now, of course, uh, this doesn't change the fact that they did come here flouting the process. Mm-hmm. Um, they came here, uh, I believe they arrived on boat. Uh, they've applied for you know, refugee status. And look, you know, at the end of the day, if you are a refugee, if you are fleeing for your life um, and you end up breaking a few laws to get here, uh, to some degree, it's understandable that you uh, are in a tough situation or circumstance. I mean, you know, we can have, a, a, you know, an argue, a debate about those sorts of issues, but these guys are not refugees. Yep. They've been assessed repeatedly by the government. They've been assessed by courts and tribunals. Mm. Uh, it's consistently been found that they are not refugees. Uh, in the middle of that civil war, the father traveled back and forth between Sri Lanka. Uh, you know, they're a Tamil family yeah. uh, between Sri Lanka and the Middle East to work there. Uh, there is no indication that they were refugees other than their own testimony. This is, this is actually the central point against their, their legal case for refugee status is that they are applying here as refugees from Sri Lanka, but didn't arrive here coming directly from, from Sri, Sri Lanka. They came here from a third country, and it seems that, that the dad was traveling frequently 
from his country of residence, it's slipping my mind at the moment, into Sri Lanka and back. So th- th- is, this, is this more or less correct? Well, well the, the dad was working in the Middle East during the Civil War, but that isn't when they tried to come here. They came here years after that fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Civil War happened around 2009 or so. Right. And, uh, you know, they arrived only in 2012, mm-hmm. claiming persecution and so on. From um, Sri Lanka, though, which is interesting because, and well, correct no, me if I'm wrong, they didn't come here from, they, they say that they're fa- facing persecution on, in Sri Lanka. None of the border rivals come directly from their country. They all come through Indonesia or through Cambodia uh, because of geography, naturally. Right. Um, but that's problematic. That's problematic, essentially, because they did not apply to be refugees while they were in Sri Lanka and then make their way to kind of like a, des- a designated area as dictated to them by the government of Australia so that they can then come here legally. They went to another country and then came into Australia fleeing persecution. Yes, but I, I think... Uh, look, I do think there needs to be some leeway on this. Uh, mm. To me, the question is, did they follow a legal process? And well, that's clearly not. Yeah. Well, it's not illegal to apply from a third country. Uh, the mistake that they made is that they came to Australia illegally on a boat. Yes. And this is actually, well, we can get right now into um, to a little bit about the the backlash that they're facing. Because as I say, they seem like a, they seem like a lovely family. They seem like law-abiding people. Uh, the community likes them. Their kids seem well-adjusted and well-adapted. And it seems somewhat cruel. Now, they did a few studies that I think relate interestingly into this issue in the United States, where essentially they, they asked people in regional small areas, mostly Republican, if they thought that, uh, that people who were in the country illegally should be deported. Overwhelmingly, they said yes. Then they asked, uh, do you know people here that are that are undocumented. And they said yes. A few of them said yes as well. But of the people who said that they did know uh, undocumented people, they thought that those people should be the exception. So yes, deport illegal aliens, except the ones that I know and that I like, which is, I think, gets to the root of this issue, because as, as unthreatening as these people seem, it seems that if we are going to enforce a law that says if you enter the country illegally, you cannot stay here, Unfortunately, what we're, what we're, what we're uh, going against, what we're persecuting, is not whether you're nice and decent and law-abiding. It's whether you came into the country legally or not, whether you have a, 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 a right to be in the country. And I think the, the, um, the evidence shows and bears out in this case that they don't. Well, um, certainly, and I, I think the ultimate issue here is why do we have the laws that we have mm-hmm. right now? If the law itself were a barometer for what the right decision is, uh, all sorts of immoralities could be justified. Yeah. Uh, but that being said, um, we have this policy, uh, face value, seemingly cruel policy to some people, of turning back border arrivals, illegal mm. maritime arrivals, right? We do this to prevent people smugglers who are criminal gangs, the same gangs involved in sex trafficking, in terrorism, and so on, from having a market. We do it to prevent people from taking a risky journey across the sea and dying, yep. as many of them drowned and died mm-hmm. uh, in you know back in the old days, 2010, 2011. And we do it because back then, when this wasn't a policy under the Labour government, uh, you had detention centres full of people. Because guess yep. what? When you cannot verify someone's claim easily or where they came from, usually those they either lost their documents or they destroyed them mm-hmm. in some cases to strengthen their claim. Um, you have to detain them 
often for years before you can be sure that there's no security concerns or anything like that. And for years because of the sheer scale of it. And yeah. Not to mention a lot of them don't even have any uh, any paper trail in their own countries. Yeah. Now, this not only costs the taxpayer an insane amount of money, mm-hmm. it also is pretty detrimental to actual refugees. Yes. Say if they actually follow this process, mm-hmm. uh, this illegal process, uh, they will be detained for so many years, you know, and that isn't good in anyone's psyche. Um, separate to that, you know, we have one of the most generous refugee intakes of any developed country, mm-hmm. second only to Canada. Over mm-hmm. 18,000 refugees a year uh, are take, uh, up to that much are taken into this country, right? right? So for every one that we take in through the back door route, which yeah. is dangerous, life-threatening, and profits people smugglers, mm-hmm. that's a position that isn't going to someone who's languishing in an s- actual civil war zone mm-hmm. who can be processed quickly while they're there yep. and then brought here. So it's unfair. Uh, now, uh, I just want to make quickly make this point as well. Um, the idea of precedent. Right. So Mm. whenever the government makes one single exception for someone saying, look, this is a great family, a great person. Yeah, they came here illegally, but come on, let's accept them. That Mm. sends a signal directly to the people who are paying people smugglers and says, hey, look, you have hope too. You should pay these people smugglers. Maybe it'll Mm. work out for you as well. Right. When in 2014, Scott Morrison, when he was immigration minister, made Mm. an exception for a Somali teenagers who were self-harming. And he uh, said, okay, this is a pretty screwed up situation. Yeah. Let's move them from, I think it was Nauru, onto the mainland. And they were eventually settled in the mainland. Okay. This was followed by a massive increase in other people trying to come here, cutting themselves and harming yeah, themselves. Of course. So these actions have consequences and we have to think about that too. Yeah, no, 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 for sure. And I think and not, not, only, not only the precedent uh, based on the example that we're giving to the world, but also the precedent that we're setting legally. Because now people can argue, we have this case of this wonderful family they were permitted to stay here despite having entered through illegal channels. And so there's no reason for this other person not to be allowed to stay. And we have several activists who, it's basically their day job to help the people <laughs> who are in the country illegally stay here. And so that's also something to take into consideration. And I think, again, I think most people recognize that though most people who may enter Australia illegally are probably good and decent people, that doesn't that doesn't change the fact that they've broken the law, and that doesn't change the fact that when a law is broken, especially an immigration law, it, it, that can't just be absolved because you might be a good person who's uh, integrated well. And so I think that that's one of the things that uh, that really bears some some importance. Now, the one thing that does complicate this issue is not as simple as just three people; they're not legal, send them right back. Is that they actually have an Australian-born daughter? Now, Australia obviously has done away with uh, birthright citizenship, but doesn't that change the equation a little bit? Uh, You could argue it does. Conversely, you can also argue that because the children are so young, Mm. it's a lot easier to adjust to life in a new country, Um, especially a country where I believe they have a lot of familial links, which they don't have in this one. Um, What I would say, uh, or what what advice I give them, not legal advice, but personal advice, Mm. would be to return to Sri Lanka Accept the fact that you have broken the law and apply for regional settlement. Look, these are economic immigrants, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with being an economic immigrant. Follows a legal process. I'm I'm an economic immigrant. (laughs) Yeah, well, so am I. I'm a first generation myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that they would have no problem eventually coming back. And the community wants them. You know, Uh, it's just about making sure that this doesn't become a precedent 
for people smuggling criminal gangs. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's that's a perfectly reasonable position to hold. Now, obviously, we're we're kind of familiar with the left leaning uh, arguments, which is they basically have a right to be here because I don't know because uh, feels good, feels good, man. No, I think that the I think the term is uh, what is it? Immigration <laughs> is a human right, something like that. Um, I, it's I think, not a crime to seek asylum. Right. And it isn't, by the way. It's it's a crime to illegally take asylum, let's say. Yeah, no one's um, no one's persecuting them for applying. For applying, <laughs> that's true. Um I'm I'm curious though, you mentioned that there's some um some kind of right wingers that are that are that are not in agreement with you or I, that they think that they should be allowed to stay. Well there's Alan Jones. Yeah, do you know what the Alan was. Jones argument is? Uh look, Alan is a populist, mm. which is respectable in his vocation. Sure. His his vocation is he's a radio host. Right. He's an opinion guy. Mm. He takes different positions on a number of things, but he tends to hit on the public pulse quite well ah. of his audience. A group of people who don't necessarily vote one way or the other. Mm. I would say they're probably majority right-wing leading. Yep. Um, his argument is that this is an exemplary family. The community wants them. They've done nothing wrong. Mm. The children are Australian in the sense that they've grown up here. They've adapted to Australia. Uh, the, community, like, the community accepts them as Australian. And I think he's standing up for this community. He's always been a champion of regional Australia. Mm. I think he probably sees this in some sense as his fight uh, against the elites uh, in the government. I see. And separate to all of that, look, he's coming off a pretty bad PR, you know, attack from the left. Right. On the Jacinda Ardern stuff. So some people are arguing that he's doing this uh, maybe to help repair his image a bit. Uh, Yeah. That could be, and again, I understand, and I'm, I'm surprised to hear that he's making this case. I, I have to say because, and I think that the the PR argument is probably the best one, because I don't think anyone's saying that this is like a bad family or anything. Anyone's making the argument that these people need to leave because they're hardened, horrible criminals. I think actually, most reasonable people, I think, are are making the argument you and I are making. Yes, this is this is a really nasty, bad situation. That's true. Uh, we're not happy about uh, seeing a, a well-adjusted, happy family uh, sent back to a, a not-that-great country. But, uh, well, not that great. A, a less safe, less prosperous country, let's put it that way. But there's a rule of law. And it seems like it just uh, uh, his brand of, popu- uh, of conservatism would be attached to rule of law Blindly applied. Look, look, the, the thing is, in this, this is a slightly wider discussion, right? But in Australia, there isn't really an intellectual backbone to most of what passes as conservatism. Mm. Uh, there are some very principled, intellectual-minded conservatives mm. who can couch their arguments, even the emotive ones, in some form of uh, ideological consistency. But a lot of what we see uh, amongst the popular conservosphere mm. is, well, the same sort of... I mean, it's couched in feels good. It's couched in the image or the idea of the thing. Mm. And that's fine. Um, but we just need to keep maintain our perspective on this. I don't blame Alan for taking up for his family. Yeah. Uh, and keep in mind, Alan is also coming off uh, the fact that, you know, this wouldn't be the first time that the minister has intervened on compassionate grounds. Yeah. There is a case of the au pairs, the French maids, who were allowed to stay in Australia by him, by mm. Peter Dutton. Uh, now, that, that is brought up by refugee rights advocates saying, what the hell is this? How can you give them compassionate intervention, okay. but not actual refugees? Now, of course, this is false uh, false equivalence. Okay. They were given a tourist visa. They went right back to France when they were done. Okay. They were not ever intending 
to stay in this country. Okay. So what 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 the case was with these ladies is that they I'm sorry I don't know the case they came here on a tourist visa and were working and Dutton basically let them play out the rest of their visa and then they went back to France is that what happened I'm sorry um, I'm asking because I don't know yeah sure something like that um, okay I think it's a very different situation it is a different situation yeah. and it was always a temporary arrangement mm. now I'm sure if this family applied for a visa that would just let them stay in the country for a few weeks more. Right. to help to prepare themselves for the trip back to Sri Lanka to say their buys. I'm sure that would be granted by the minister uh, on compassion grounds, but they want something different. And I do think that they need to make an example. And, and the, the reason, not, not, I mean, not, not because I take any pleasure from it, but unfortunately, the, the situation we're dealing with is people dying on their way into Australia and paying some of the worst people alive in order to do so. And I think that Australia needs to make the case that you're not going to make Australia home if you enter illegally. There's just there's just no path for that. And if we if we just even if we if we give a little, we're just basically making we're basically marketing, uh, doing free marketing for people smugglers. And I think that that's problematic. Um, but I, I want to touch on on happier well not happier just let's say let's less tragic uh, uh, subject <coughs> now. Uh, climate change. Yeah. <laughs> so climate change, which we know isn't tragic because. Uh, there's no real indication that it's going to harm us in any immediate way anytime soon. The alarmism seems uh, extreme. It's everywhere. Uh, I think even the people that we give our taxpayer dollars to seem to be kind of uh, promoting this this uh, idea that the, that the climate is changing at a rate that is going to ultimately destroy us in a relatively small amount of time. And immediate action needs to be taken now, lest we all die. So, and the reason we're bringing this up is because you're going to be talking about this uh, this week on a popular uh, TV show. What is it? What, what are you? What are you? Uh, the feed on the SBS. Feed on SBS. By the time this goes live, uh, you would have already been on. So, yeah, so it's on, it's on uh, Thursday night, eight PM. Yeah. So viewers, please uh, look out for that. Uh, listeners, rather. Uh, but but the reason I want to talk about this is because I think that it's so misunderstood. Climate change is so misunderstood. I think people really with the best intentions think that all of these uh, predictions are correct, but they're not. There's cause for concern. Don't get me wrong, but it's not what people are representing. So um, wh- why don't you get started start in this conversation? Uh, well, it's one of those difficult issues where... Mm. Uh, there's a tendency of one side to completely misrepresent the other. Yeah. So if you don't agree with the default line, yeah. which is society needs to decivilize itself immediately, <laughs> yeah. we have a hashtag emergency, hashtag crisis. <laughs> uh, and unless we decivilize and deindustrialize ourselves and destroy our societies mm-hmm. and throw all our money into renewable energy, which is not capable of right. providing any reliable, dependable power supply whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, in an affordable price point without backup from fossil fuels. Unless you do that yesterday, uh, you are a climate change denier. That's right. This is a complete misrepresentation. Uh, No one who isn't high on LSD would argue that that, that, that human beings don't have some heating effect on the environment. Mm. Uh, no one would argue that carbon dioxide doesn't have some heating effect on the environment. Sure. The question is, to what degree are humans, are human activity responsible for the climate change? Mm. And secondly, uh, to what degree does what we do now actually have the ability to 
change what's going to happen. Right. And thirdly, how accurate are these actual predictions they're making? That's a really good point. And I think we, we can kind of touch on each one. So first of all, I think people don't understand the separations between certain aspects of the science that's being put forth. The first would be the diagnosis. This is, uh, there's somewhat of a consensus here that says, yes, the climate is changing, and that is due to human activity. The 97% uh, figure is not correct. It's more like 61, so uh, a small uh, plurality of, of climate scientists agree. Uh, we, we'll discuss that in a second. The second is the predictions. That's a totally separate branch of science. The first does not necessarily lead to the second. And then the third is the, di the diagnosis, the, the, the solutions. Like, what are, what are we actually going to do about it? And I think people think that the three are mixed. That 97% of climate scientists agree that the climate is warming because of human activity, that this is going to happen as a result, and that these are the steps that must be taken. And those are not all the same thing, correct? 97% or actually 99.7% or something yeah. agree that human activity has some impact on the climate. Uh, that is not the accurate figure yeah. for the number of people or studies who uh, believe that humans are the primary that's driver. Right. That's right. Uh, one, uh, one thing that's important to remember, and you know, this is actually from a conversation I had with um, Peter Ridd. Mm. So he's a James Cook University professor who won his court case That's right. uh, you know, against his unfair dismissal by James Cook University. Who is not taking it lying down. <laughs> yeah, and you know, th that university mm. is completely trampling all over academic freedom and scientific inquiry. Mm. Uh, it's, it's absolutely, it's horrible that you can have a public university doing that. Yeah. Um, now, I spoke to him and he reminded me that some 5,000 years ago or so, the earth was a lot warmer than it is right now. Mm -hmm. And life was thriving. Yeah. Things were going pretty great. Mm. Um, and there was no industrial age back then. There was no massive human activity. Mm. When people say, oh, but the recent spate of warming is coinciding with uh, sp sp an increase in human activity. Sure, but, you know, correlation and causation are not the same thing. Now, it right. could be human activity that's driving it. Yeah. That's possible. It could be sol solar activity. Yeah. It could be something that we just do not understand. Geological. Yet. Yeah. And sometimes we have to be willing to say, well, we don't know, right. but in case it's this, this is what we're going to do. Now, I think that's an entirely reasonable, rational position. Yes. But what you have happening now is people even question the unproven assumption that human activity is a primary driver. That's right. Are anti-science, when in fact, this is completely against the spirit of science. That's right. Well, one of the interesting things that I think um, we can go into right now is what you discuss. There's uh, what you say, 99% of people agree the climate is changing. Yeah, that's pretty observable, that it's CO2 emissions causing it. Well, to a lesser degree, I think that's 61% of climate scientists. Um, but then let's say that we have that science. 61% say it's true. And then we have something else, which is the climate models. Now, these are the models that, uh, that people discuss when we say, well, we need to cut the amount of emissions. Otherwise, we're going to continue on this current trajectory. And this current trajectory is going to lead to um, deforestation, drought, uh, massive uh, displacement of people, all this. All right. Now, here's what's interesting about that. First of all, we've had these uh, projections before, and none of them have come true. That, that's one of the things that I think is really important to keep in mind, not because we're purposefully denying science, but because the same thing has been done before, 
with very little accuracy. So we have a reason to be skeptical. There, there's no reason for us to just throw our hands up and say, this is the right one. But let's say that we believe the, the, the predictions. They're not saying, those predictions don't say what the climate activists are saying. What they say is, in 12 years time, we're going to reach a threshold, at which point we're not going to be able to reduce uh, emissions enough to stop the, uh, the, the walk, the, you know, the path towards all these terrible things happening to the earth. That's very different from in 12 years we're going to be dead or in 50 years we're going to be dead. And what they say also, which I think is, this is the IPCC report, is in order to stop this, uh, this walk towards destruction, we need to cut emissions worldwide, worldwide by 45% by 2030 and by 50% by 2050. Right. So that's not going to happen. That's, that's never just gonna not going to happen. No. It's not realistic. We, maybe if we nuke India and China. Yeah. And maybe even then. Right? So why is this a why even if even if we believe what they're saying, even if we said, yes, you're right, this is all going to happen. We we need to reduce emissions. We can't. So why isn't the conversation more about uh, what are we gonna do to deal with the fallout? Because clearly we're not gonna stop it. There's no way we're gonna cut emissions by fifty percent by twenty fifty. That's just not it's not logically possible. Look, so why is that look, these these people are intellectually and scientifically dishonest. Uh, yeah. People call them climate change activists, and I'm referring mm -hmm. specifically. Look, I'm not referring to someone who has you know a strong opinion on this, who's out sure. there necessarily protesting. They're not all bad people, no, no. right? But there are movements right now afoot, uh, often being bankrolled by some dubious sources. Mm -hmm. uh, now, of course, I I can't make any substantial allegations there, but right. you know there's certainly money behind a lot of the stuff. Mm. Um, and they're not really activists, they're bullies. Yeah. And activists would be, number one, trying to draw attention to a cause that doesn't have enough public attention. Mm -hmm. And number two, to draw attention to what they see as the solution. Yeah. Uh, and that solution would be something that attempts to manage concerns from both sides mm -hmm. so that it's realistic. Because, you know, there's no point in having, in living in a la-la land solution. You've got to have a solution that is politically feasible unless your plan is to literally overthrow the government and establish a dictatorship of you. Right, but that's actually it because you call them bullies, aren't they? Authoritarians. Every single solution hands them all of the control over everything. Essentially, it even hands. I mean, it, interestingly enough, a lot of the climate scientists, uh, the climate activists, rather, have very strong positions on societal things, things that uh, regard how people can speak or the way in which businesses can run themselves and uh, the, the business owners, rather. And so, I wouldn't call them bullies. I'd call them authoritarians. Well, I think bully is probably a, sh a shorthand way of saying an authoritarian. Someone's trying to mm. assert their authority over you, trying to tell you how you should live your life. Uh, how are these people living their lives? Well, guess what? They bankrolled uh, Greta Thunberg. Oh, right. You know, that Swedish yeah. uh, you know, figurehead. Um, mm. They put her on a so-called carbon neutral boat to send her into New York. And now they would literally fly in two pilots. Not pilots. Like, they would fly in two sailors yeah. to New York, producing a ton of carbon emissions. Right. Uh, just to bring that boat back. back. Right. I mean, this is absolutely insane. Now, you mm -hmm. might say, no, it's all worth it because uh, attention to my cause. Huh. Yeah, well, because it's not the most hotly contested, most important uh, po political discussion uh, probably of modern Yeah, because guess what, right? These people have yelled in the faces of ordinary members of the public, were sick of paying insanely right. high electricity bills, were sick of seeing their living standards get eroded, right. that sort of thing. They've screamed in our faces, for years, and they've kept screaming again and again. Yeah. The public heard them screaming, 
the public went to the polls on the, you know yep. in, in May this year in Australia at least right. uh, and the public made their vote very clear they did not do this because they didn't have people scream in their face enough they did this because the more these bullies yeah. scream in our faces and lecture us without any actual political politically viable solution the more people are turned off their horrible message yeah that's true that's true i just want to correct something i said really quickly it, i said the most the hottest controversial the hottest political topic probably of the last 10 years i really don't want to save the modern era because yeah <laughs> it's definitely more significant things have taken place no but it's it's true and i think that when it comes to Greta Thunberg, for example, I feel, I feel bad that people are kind of going after her. She's a 16-year-old girl who's clearly being taken advantage of by uh, politically motivated people. So I do think that, you know, and I'm not saying that you were, by the way, but a lot of people have just been taken to this very vicious aim at the 16-year-old girl who has a disability. I think that's not fair. But what I think is fair is to point out that everything that she's proposing is not only not reasonable, feasible, or rational, it's also anti-scientific. The fact that we would need to plunge millions upon millions upon millions of people into poverty in the third world and lower the entire living standard for everyone in the first world simply to achieve uh, a reduction in emissions that leads to us not reaching some kind of threshold that we don't even know is going to have certain opinions, uh, certain uh, effects, is ridiculous. It, it really is absurd, and it's just incredible to me to hear so many established politicians, commentators, and all that speaking so fecklessly about the issue as if it were uh, an absolute certainty. And yeah, it, it, it's really, really, really terrifying. Uh, we're reaching the end, Satya. Do you have any closing remarks on this? Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you do care about any politically realistic solution to climate change that mm. doesn't destroy people's living standards, you will support legalization of nuclear power. Absolutely. We are the only advanced economy in the world's top advanced economies to ban it completely. There's, there's an inquiry going on right now. The Australian government is finally waking up and realizing that this is something they have to look into. People are sick and tired of subsidizing expensive, unreliable, uh, renewable energy. Um, and yeah, look right into your local MP. Tell them about this inquiry. Tell them to come out and support nuclear power. Legalizing it. Let's have all the options on the table. Let's have a solution that is politically realistic and delivers, in the long run, some cheap, reliable electricity that we all need. I, I think that's, I mean, I couldn't have put it better myself. Uh, Satya, thanks so much for taking the time. And uh, to everyone, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Adapod, a podcast by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. If you care to know more about the ATA, visit their website www.taxpayers.org, where you'll be able to see their mission statement, their projects, campaigns, objectives, and so much more. Remember, listening to the podcast is free, but creating it isn't. If you'd like to continue to see the Australian Taxpayers Alliance advocacy, please consider becoming a member or donating. You can do this on their website as well. This has been Adipod. We'll see you next time.